Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. In 1935, in light of the corruption of the German church by the Nazi party, the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was commissioned to start a countercultural underground seminary. It's a place to live with and form young theological students into the image of Christ under the threat of war, and it was in a place called Finkenwald. Uh, Bonhoeffer was a prodigy. He had long been a PhD by this point. He was commissioned to start the seminary at the ripe age of 29. That's, he, he was forming others at the age of 29 and had long been a PhD student by this point. He was a prodigy and like many prodigies, Bonhoeffer was pretty intense. And some of his friends had their concerns about this intensity. So when unusual reports about Finkenwald began to make their way back to his friends, uh, they decided to see for themselves. And in particular, they sent a young man named Wilhelm Nissel to visit him. Now, Nissel in particular had become suspicious of too much spiritualism, which is a sentence I love. He stayed with Bonhoeffer for a few days, uh, participating in Finkenwald's rhythms of life before on the last day, Bonhoeffer took him on a rowing trip down the nearby river to a place called Oda Sound. And there they disembarked from the rowboat and climbed up the hill to a clearing. And they turned and across the river, they could see the German army. There were planes taking off and landing. There were troops forming up, massing, practicing their exercises. And Bonhoeffer began to explain to his friend Nissel exactly why there was this degree of intensity around what he was doing, what his intent was with his formation. He spoke of a new generation of Germans in training whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. You have to be stronger, said Bonhoeffer, than those tormentors you find everywhere today. Or as John Tyson likes to put it, this must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. This, the people of God being formed in the image of Jesus Christ must be stronger than that. The patterns of the world, the flesh and the devil that want to unform, deform us from that image and reform us in a different one. This is the vision of Bonhoeffer. This is the vision of Christ. Welcome to Live No Lies, week two, where we continue our exploration into the world, the flesh and the devil, and the havoc they wreak on our souls. This is, if you weren't here last week, quick recap. This is based on John Mark Comer's brilliant book of the same name, and his basic idea is that these three ancient enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, which have been written about by Christian authors for centuries, for centuries, these are colluding in a sense, literally, but there's a spiritual sense in which there is a collusion between them that is at war with our souls. And his premise is this. The devil brings deceptive ideas, or lies, I guess you could call them, that play to the flesh's disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. This is kind of the heart of the whole series, so I'll read that again. The devil brings deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. So the lies of the devil which try to encourage and develop the worst desires within us, can then be normalized and affirmed and even legalized in our culture. And then we have an entire system built on the lies of the devil rather than the truth of God. So if God longs for us to be formed in the image of Christ, the world, the flesh, and the devil longs for exactly the opposite. 
Now, next week, Charlie Burke, you are going to love Charlie. He's speaking about the devil, so I'll just leave that for him. <laughs> no, these are all two-parters. These are all two-handers. So if you feel like you're missing something this week, I want to encourage you, jump on the podcast and listen to week one of Live No Lies. So Live No Lies week one is up. Have a listen to that and then listen to this week's, and they fit together because we're looking at the world week two. You with me so far? Yeah. Good, good. And next two weeks, we'll look at the devil. That's going to be some fun. So a recap of the world part one from last week, really quickly. The world remembers the Greek word cosmos, and in effect, we're talking about the definition of it that means an anti-God system, right? An anti-God system. Cosmos means a few different things that we looked at last week. Coma's full definition is behind me here. Last week, we talked about a couple of important ideas that make up the framing of this idea of the world. We looked at how in 21st century Australia, individuals are the ones who redefine goodness and what is right in our lives. And that leads to oppression of those who we do not see as good or right. We explored the idea of social contagion theory. You remember that? How behaviours and ideas spread through groups of people and good ideas and behaviours spread just as quickly or maybe not even as quickly as bad ideas and behaviours. So the people we are in proximity with is important. And then we looked at Paul's advice to engage with the world by renewing our minds with the mind of Christ Jesus, by reminding ourselves of our relationship with God through Christ and using that knowledge to wisely discern the patterns of this world. Now that's a mouthful. So why don't we just take it from Karl Barth instead, who says this, take your Bible and take your newspaper and read them both, but interpret your newspaper with your Bible, not the other way around. Very, very important. So on to the world part two. And going back to this must be stronger than that for a moment. John Tyson was talking about this line and Bonhoeffer in an interview with John Mark Comer recently. Tyson's a pastor in New York City. He's an Adelaide boy, actually, a great guy. And he said that he thinks we underestimate the importance of the need for counter-formation against the formative tactics of this world. Now, Comer, who is a modern expert on formation, which is the art of becoming more like Jesus, Right? So every time I'm talking about reforming, deforming, forming, I'm just saying, are we being formed into the image of God or are we being formed into something else? That's what we're talking about. So formation is the art of becoming like Jesus, being formed into the image of Jesus. Now, he, Comer agreed with this, and he pointed out that for many Christians, if you're here and you call yourself a Christian, and you've been a Christian for more than a hot minute, your great fear is probably that you're going to become the sort of uptight religious person that you saw in previous generations or people around you that you didn't like, and you are afraid of that and of what that will be doing to you and to people around you. That is a valid fear, but it rates about here in the culture we live in today. The greater fear, Coma suggests, and he lives in Portland, so, you know, the greater fear is that we are more likely to become hedonists. Now, what's a hedonist? Hedonism is an ethical theory. I know everyone leans in when I say the words ethical theory. That's becoming popular again. This is what it is. Hedonism is the theory that your personal pleasure is the highest good. Now, you may never have heard of this, but you've lived it, right? It's like, what, does it make you happy? It's like, wow, what a question. What a, what a deep yet simultaneously shallow question. Does it make me happy? Because that's the idea. The idea of hedonism is that pleasure is the highest good and the proper aim of human life. So you should do what makes you happy. Now, we're too smart to believe this entirely, right? Like if somebody just said, do what makes you happy, there's at least a bit of our brain that's like, well, like 
if I'm happy not having a belly, I might need to do some sit-ups. And I don't love that, but one gets the other. You know what I mean? So we're smart enough to realize that, but we are so deeply formed by the patterns of this world that we can't just reject that stuff outright. It seeps into us, into our very pores. So the postmodern, post-Christian life is one that's devoted almost totally to self-satisfaction. And that leads us to this idea that if it doesn't make me happy, then it's wrong. And I should actually fight against it. It's really weird, but that's where we are. Now, hedonism is an example of what's known as soft power. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly because you don't want me to spend too long on it, as opposed to hard power. Okay? So these are um, terms coined by a guy called uh, Joseph Nye, a political scientist. And hard power is what you think of in a dictatorship. Military power, you're talking uh, uh, military police, you're talking um, uh, secret police, people being rounded up in the, in the night and thrown into prison. You're thinking of economic sanctions. Very physical, very clear dictatorship. Think of North Korea, right? That's what we're thinking about when we're thinking about hard power. But soft power is different. Soft power is about, oh, and in hard power, of course, you get changed because if you don't, but with soft power, it's not like that. In soft power, you get changed through attraction and coercion. The leading executors of soft power in the world is Hollywood. They're the leading executors of it because they intentionally look to challenge and change ethics. And yes, it's intentional. It's not corporate. There's not a conspiracy like James Hollywood is up the back like pulling the strings. But the people that get into these positions know what they want and they know the ideas that they want to be disseminated into the world and they do it and they go about and do it. Read a, dis a leaked Disney memo sometime and you'll find out something about that. They are doing it intentionally. And they put those themes in content that people want to watch. Some of it is for the fun of it. Some of it is quite intentional because they want to change people's ethics. And over time, it does. As they gather supporters, they gather credibility. And as they gather supporters, celebrity can then go, okay, well, I'm going to publicly stand for these without the veneer of a movie or a TV series or a, or a song to put them through. And then their fans back them, and then those who disagree with them are cast out. It's the cycle we looked at last week where you, what you used to celebrate is now condemned, what was condemned is now celebrated, and those who refuse to celebrate are condemned, aka cancel culture. If you're not with us, you're against us. And the thing about hard power is it always creates a resistance. At some point, people rise up. Think about the French Revolution. You know, let them eat cake. No, I don't think so. We're going to rise up against that stuff. There's always a backlash. People stand up against it. But how do you stand up to an idea? Because soft power is both more attractive and more like amorphous. You can't just get your teeth into it. You can't just get in a fist fight with soft power. It's harder to fight an idea. Companies don't market to us by appealing, like telling us we're idiots. They appeal to us, to our desires. The ones that we probably shouldn't be tapping into as much, but we do. Think about something as formative as Apple. I've used this encounter before, but hear me out. I only own Apple computing products and I'm not an Apple guy. And the reason is they make it easier for you to own other parts of their products that work together. It's just easier. Just one of us, one of us. Like They just suck you in and suddenly you're 10 feet deep going, have I become one of those people that looks down on people with Samsung Galaxies? And yes, I have, but not on purpose. But the long-term effects of these types of power are the same as anyone getting into power. The power rises to the top and it is used to oppress the people who aren't aligned with them. Soft power leads to hard power either way. Now, 
I very deliberately not touched on a whole bunch of topics over these last two weeks that I easily could have. And partly because I feel like the world, the flesh and the devil are probably intense enough without throwing a few more bombs into the congregation at the same time. And partly because if we unpack big topics, we need to do it properly and and pay careful theological and pastoral attention to how we communicate that stuff. But the reality is, as I said last week, you are designed to be a light into the world if you are somebody who calls himself a Christian. And that means that you are shining light into darkness. Now, we sometimes get stressed out by that because the Bible tells us that the darkness will not overcome it, but our lived reality is the darkness is trying pretty hard. Tim Keller suggests that out of the four historic convictions that Orthodox Christians have held, two of them are on the political left, two of them are on the political right, and if you want to hold them all together, that sounds like a good way to get in a fight with absolutely everyone. (laughs) Long story short, if we as Christians are effective in becoming more like Christ, we are going to be upsetting people. There will be people who oppose us. That leads me to tonight's teaching text. See, John happened to be the guy that more than anyone else explored this idea of the cosmos, the world, as a system. He took all of Jesus' teachings about it, not only in uh, the Gospel of John, but in the letter of 1 John in particular, and talked about the ways of the world. And then he is the one who gets the revelation that becomes the end of the, the Bible that we know today, of the vision of what is to come, which is the destruction of the system of the world, the end of the devil, the end of our age, and the coming of the kingdom of God in full. So John is this guy that has his head around it, and he is in the middle of writing down this long speech that Jesus is giving to his disciples, and I have absolutely zero doubt. Obviously, I wasn't there, but I can guarantee you this was the look on the disciples' face during this speech. Yeah, just just a lot of, this is going to be riveting audio for the podcast, but it's just a lot of what is he talking about to the degree that later on in chapter 16, as Jesus is continuing his speech, one of the disciples is like, oh, now you're speaking plainly and we understand you. Like they have to jump on the one thing he says that they understand. So we didn't understand that then, or we certainly don't understand it now, but here's the idea. The Christian life attracts opposition. The Christian life attracts opposition. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, you're like, oh, yeah, this is not your best selling point, Mike. I was like, still got time, come on. <laughs> and this seems, this seems frustrating to us as Christians, though, because we feel like we've tasted something. We, we've, we've tasted the presence of God. There's something so powerful and beautiful and truly good that we now have a hold of. We ask ourselves, why would this be a negative to people? Well, let's go back to the light and the darkness analogy, right? If you shine a light into the darkness, it illuminates everything, right? That's not up for debate. The light goes into the darkness, we get illuminated. Most people look at that light and are like, whoa, look what I can see. But if you've got a migraine, do you know what you do? You get furious. You're like, turn that light off. I'm in pain here. You're making it worse. Now, if, if you have had a migraine, oh, I'm so sorry. The Lord has given me one ever just so I would, I think it's just so I would understand what you go through when you have a migraine. It's awful. And so those people, same light, same space, same message are reacting differently. One of them's going, thank God for this light that's come in. The others is going, turn that off. It's making it worse. Now, the problem is, here's the problem. The world presents ideas like this. Every idea has equal merit. Choose whichever one you want. I mean, if you choose the wrong one, we'll cast you out socially, but choose whatever you want. But not every idea has equal merit. 
Because in this idea that I just brought to you, that the light illuminates the darkness and some people welcome it and the ones with the migraine don't, you've got to remember that the light isn't the problem, the migraine is the problem. The light of God is not the problem. The sin in the world and in the human heart is the problem. So if you shine a light on somebody and their response is, their first response will always be to cringe back. Always. You turn the light on, oh, it's a bit overwhelming. That's what it's like when God comes in our lives for the first time. But if they can start to open their eyes, they go, look how much I can see now. And for many of those people, in fact, almost everyone, their first response is to see themselves and go, I had no idea I was this grimy. In the darkness, I didn't know I looked like this. And many people will turn to God and say, God, forgive me. I didn't, I didn't mean to come before you looking like this. But the migraine people won't. They'll have the light go on them and they'll go, you are making the pain worse. Turn it off or I'm just going to get angrier. There is a portion of people, they are going to be like that when the light of God shines on their life. Your job, friends, is never to try and make them less angry particularly. Your job is to shine the light, right? We're just here being the light of the world, echoing the light of Christ. Don't worry about people's migraine. Keep concentrating on being the light. But when you do that, just be aware that people's sin and anger and frustration, it will come up against it, right? That's not to say, by the way, there's not valid questions as well. There are. Some of those valid questions are not as valid as they appear on the surface level. But that's, anyway, I'm going off topic. So Jesus speaks about opposition. And he, and he said again and again, and I don't know if you noticed this in the passage, it's quite visible. Hate. They will hate you. It's strong language. And he says that the hatred that people show Christians is actually a reflection of hatred towards Jesus. He's basically saying, don't worry about it. They hate me, not you. You're just bearing the lie. They really hate me. They're rejecting me. And Jesus identifies sin as being the root cause of this. Sin is in the world. It's been exposed by Jesus and people are responding in different ways. Some with grief and repentance, others with anger and hostility. And some people look to Jesus to heal the migraine of sin. Others blame him because the sin exposed feels worse. They would rather have the pain removed, not the illness healed. They would rather be numbed than made better. That's the way of this world. And as Jesus says in verse 22, well, now they have no excuse. That is to say, oh man, it was pretty bad when we just had this idea about sin. But when the light's been shone right on us, we don't have any excuse. But if there are systems in this world that are seeking to make evil good and good evil, to condemn what should be celebrated and celebrate what should be condemned and turning vice into virtue, then it should be no surprise that there's anger towards the one who exposed that sin. You with me? All right. It's important though now. We look at the context of this whole passage. Jesus is speaking about the hate that will be received from Christians, to Christians. He says, you will have to understand that they will hate you. If they hated me, they'll hate you. If you bring light into that darkness, they will hate you. But he's doing it in the context of John 15, one of the most beautiful, encouraging, uplifting chapters in all of Scripture. I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me. Rest in me. Jesus is telling people that the pain that they are going to be attacked, they're going to feel pain, they're going to have trouble, they're going to be attacked, but they do it from a place of intimacy with Jesus. That is, if they are attached to the vine, there is nothing that can be thrown at them that is going to overwhelm them. Nothing that's in the world that can be too strong if you are in the vine with Christ. It says the results of not resting in his presence, of not abiding, not being attached to the vine, is to be formed in the patterns of this world. And we're either going to be formed in those patterns 
or in the patterns of Christ? Which do we choose? As we spoke of last week, there's not a third option. We're in Christ's image or we are not in Christ's image. So, given that the world is external to us, we're trying to be in it but not of it, not conform to it, what is the spiritual practice that counterforms us against the practices of the world? Because that's the question that we really need answered. You don't need me to rail against society. That's not particularly helpful. We need help to stay close to Jesus. If we were going to do this all on our own, we'd be doing it successfully. We're not. Not really. To remain in the love of Christ, to abide with him, means to do it with other people. Because love isn't love on your own. Did you know that? It's called narcissism, self-love. Love is only love when other people are there to participate in it. Love is for the benefit of another and their love is for the benefit of you. That is what love is for. It is reciprocal by its very nature. That's why our God is what we call a triune God. He's three in one. So he understands loving union because he lives loving union. And that is what love is like. So the antidote for the world If the world forms us by social contagion theory, where our ideas, behaviors, attitude are shaped by the people and organizations that we are most frequently paying attention to and most in common proximity to, then it stands to reason that we should be paying attention to the right things and in proximity around the right people. And the answer is so obvious that we miss it. The church is the antidote to the ways of this world. Now, the church, it's even speaking about it feels heavy sometimes because everyone comes with baggage about church and about what this idea is. Just like I said last week, just open up your minds for a moment. Move with me here. The church is the antidote to the world because the church is meant to be a counter-formation machine, okay? Social contagion theory applies to the church just as well as it does to any other system. That is, you get around an idea and you talk about it and you shape one another in it and it begins to take hold of you. That is where revival comes from. One little ember with another ember and then a flame and then a bonfire. That is why we see revival in our churches when we're focused on asking the Spirit of God to move in us. That's why it's the antidote to the way of the world. When you're in proximity to the church and paying attention to the wisdom of the church, you are well equipped to defend yourself against the narratives and patterns of this world. The church is designed to deform you out of the image of this world, break the power of sin in your life through Christ and reform you into the image of God and send you back into the world. That is the rhythm of the church. Now, why? Because this must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. Now, cosmos, as we said last week, has three definitions. Ecclesia, which is the Greek word most commonly used for church, also has three definitions, but they're a bit closer. One is the church local, like you're in right now, in Canada Church. The other is the church global, the entirety of the church around the globe. And the third is the church historical, every saint throughout human history. When you are baptized, and this is why we get baptized, by the way, you are baptized into a local expression of a global community that lasts throughout history. And you have saints past and future cheering you on. That is the beauty of the church. So when I say pay attention and be in proximity to the church, that's what I mean. Now, the literal meaning of the word ecclesia is assembly. And to assemble, people are called out from where they are, which is why the ecclesia is sometimes called the called out ones. I love that. We are the called out ones. Do you know, though, when the people were not assembled, when they were not called out from their workplaces, when they were not called out from their homes, they were not considered to be part of the ecclesia. Do you know what that means? If you're not gathered together, you're not the church. 
Oh, but I'm, at the ch- I'm the church in my home. No, you're not. No, no, you're a living temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not the church. Oh, but I meet with a friend in the cafe and, and we chat. That's not the church. That's, that's beneficial. It's helpful. I listen to these podcasts. That's great. I'm sure they're really good. Or they might not be too because podcasts. But, but that's not the church, right? Like, and, and, and sometimes we go like, oh, it's the church or it's bad. That's not what I'm saying. There are lots of things that are beneficial, but they're not the church. When you catch up with a buddy for prayer and scripture reading, sitting over a, over a table in a cafe, that is beneficial. It's not the church. When you have your quiet time with the Lord, doing your devotion, pressing in, reading scripture, praying, that is beneficial. It's not the church. To be the church, there are certain things that it has to be. But, and this is where some people might go, ah, but Matthew 18 says uh, we're two or three gathered there I am and I'd say yes God's there because again you're a temple of the Holy Spirit so where one or one is gathered you are there this by the way is in the context of church discipline so I'm not sure you want to quote that to me here but to be the church there are certain things that have to happen and we don't like that very much because a couple of the patterns of the way of this world at the moment include deconstructionism and a challenge to all authority Now, some of those things come about for healthy reasons. We deconstruct something that has been unhealthy, but it needs to be reconstructed into something that is healthy. And that's where we have lost our power. We we reject an authority that has been shown to be misused, but we replace it by not putting an authority in place. We think, well, we're being shaped by the patterns of this world. So some other authority is coming above us. We're just not choosing what it is in this case. We need to be wise enough to come under the authority of scripture and of a local church. Let me unpack that. Jesus, who attended synagogue weekly, as was his habit, that's in the scripture, he put it this way, I will build my church. He will do it. It's him, it's his church. He will do it, it's a guarantee. It's building and it's being built and Christ is about that. It belongs to him and it is a church. It is a gathering, it is an ecclesia. It is a people called out of their workplaces, called out of their homes into one place at a certain time to become the church corporate. That is critical. There's a reason, friends, that dictatorships try and shut down the church. One of the first things that happens when somebody gets too much power is they go, how can we control the religious systems? Ask the Chinese Communist Party why they've been shutting down every church they can get their hands on. It used to be just the underground churches. Now it's the the national church as well. Everything is getting shut down. Why? Because churches contain ideas and ideas have soft power. We talked about that already. They can have positive power as well as negative power. To be part of the church, there are qualifications. So really quickly and not at all comprehensively, what makes a church. I'm gonna give you five ideas from James Emery White, who I like a lot and I think is worth looking at. Number one, if what you are in is church, there must be a community of faith. That is, there must be community and it must be a community of faith specifically. We are people physically together. Online church, I love you. I'm so glad you're online, but it is not the same as being physically in the building. Many of you are sick, I'm so glad you can be here. This is why we will always do online church, always. But if you can be here, I wanna encourage you, be here. I'm gonna get to why in just a minute. Paul wrote of those as well, inside and outside of the church. He said, to those in the church and to those not in the church. That's a bit odd. But what he was saying is that for those of you who are in this room, some of you are people who you would call themselves Christians. And some of you are people who you would say, I'm not yet a Christian, I don't know if I will be, but I'm, I'm here, I'm asking questions. So good, really glad you're in the room. But for those people, 
technically, biblically, you are not part of the church yet because you do not yet believe in Jesus as Lord. Now, you can still participate in the community, and this is where we get confused. You can belong before you believe here at Encounter. We love that about this place. However, make no bones about it. We want you to believe. We want you to believe in Jesus as the Lord. We're not going on about this week after week because we think this is one of several good options. We think this is it. We have sold the farm. It's the pearl of great price. We've sold everything. We found this one pearl. This is all we want. And we speak again and again in different ways that Jesus is Lord. That is what we're saying. That's what the ecclesia is. We, we, to be God's people, we still need to be people of faith. So that's number two. When you believe, you believe in something, a confession of doctrine. We must agree on certain things in order to follow Jesus faithfully. This is another thing we don't like much. Don't tell me what to believe. I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm telling you that you're not a Christian if you don't, which I'm sure everyone's really cool with. Now, not everything. You don't have to believe everything everything. Let me give you an example. You could have a different opinion on infant baptism to me. I don't think it matters enough. Does it matter? Yes, it does. It is important. But is it important enough to divide us? No, it isn't. So what are the things we must believe? Really simply, the number one thing above all else is that Jesus is Lord. That's the classic statement of the Christian church. Jesus is Lord. He is the true king of the universe. Now, there's a lot underneath that statement supporting it. And if I was to just say, read this, this is what you should believe, the Apostles' Creed. Google that when you get home. That is what joins us together across church movements throughout generations. Now, is there more that you should probably believe? Probably, probably. But if you can't say Jesus is Lord, you're not somebody who currently calls themselves a Christian. And that's okay. Like, that's not an attack. I'm just trying to help you realize where you are right now. And if you're not somebody who affirms the Apostles' Creed, then we are on a different page in terms of what you believe and what this church believes. And in fact, what the Orthodox Universal Church believes. So that's helpful to understand. Really though, it's the Bible, isn't it? Like that's what we are trying to gather around as one thing. In the church, the Word of God preached through the Bible is revealed in full. And we set aside time weekly to participate in learning about God. That's what we do when we gather here. That's one of the things that you're hopefully doing right now. The third thing is that we need to be a corporate, we need to be corporate in our organization. That means there must be some structure. I know it is very trendy POMO to, for us to just have a free-for-all. And there are elements of that that we actually need, right? Like, I'm going to get to that in a minute. But there must be organization to have the capacity for leadership and structure and decision-making in a healthy way, right? We've seen when power gets misused, if you've ever been into a space where there's a power vacuum, somebody steps in to fill that void. That's why we need leadership. Leadership like us that is held accountable to elders like Jeremy, like that's, that's how the leadership structure works. There's accountability within it, but still leadership. It also needs to be structured so that you can use your gifts to serve one another. Now that's something, frankly, I think we could get a little bit better at but we're trying to move in that direction. And one of the ways we're trying to move in that direction is to push you guys to actually do it. This is why we do have ministry teams, so you can participate in using your gifts. But there is another element of that. We as leaders, we're not called to do the church, like to, to do it, do the work. We're called to equip the church, equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's you. Our job primarily is to go, how can we help you to be using your gifts best? I'm already using my gifts. I'm fine, man. You want me to use more of my gifts? I just get tired. 
Like, I'm not the sort that's like, give me another challenge, another hill. Like, no, I'm pretty good, actually. I like what I do. Like, but if you can be using your gifts, oh, that's going to put the fire of God in my life. Because that's what we are here for, to equip you and release you for the work of ministry. My job as your pastor is to help you become the church. Fourth thing, celebration, which is public worship, including the use of sacraments. Believers come together for these events. We come together for communion, we come together for baptism, but we come together weekly. The rhythm of weekly worship is built around the seven-day week, which we see in Genesis chapter one. Six days of work, the seventh day we rest. And in some of that, as we participate in the church, yes, we serve one another, but we rest and rest together. We rest in the presence of God. We celebrate in worship together. And as we see people using their gifts, like Josh and Alec and the team here, our hearts are uplifted. As they worship, we worship. The Christ in our sister and brother is stronger than the Christ in us. And so this is how the body of Christ works together. We pray for one another. We worship God together and our spirits lift each other's spirits. And finally, the fifth C is the cause, the mission of God. We grow and set our hearts on evangelism and discipleship. Discipleship, so we're formed into the image of Christ. Evangelism, because the love of God is not just for us. Remember, love takes more than one person. It's for others. We plan strategic service for us and for the poor. And then we're sent out to do that. That's the next six days, or as we might call it, invading Mondays. That's what we do. See, when we miss this section of church, the outflow, or we think that it has to happen in this one and a bit hours on a Sunday, depending on how long ago, when we think it has to happen here, or when we forget to do it out there, that's when we get disillusioned. Because we know, if you're a Christian, that something's off. We know like, no, no, we're meant to be serving. Doesn't, doesn't Jesus talk about the poor quite a lot? Yeah, he really does. Like he really wants us to serve the poor. He really wants us to share our faith with one another. We get disillusioned when either we're like, well, why aren't we doing that in this one and a quarter hour on a Sunday? It's like, because 75 minutes, you can only do so much, my dude. My brother in Christ, let me tell you something. <laughs> like, there is only so much time. <laughs> but out there, you are commissioned and sent to do it. And when you're not doing it out there, you feel disillusioned as well. You feel like a bit off, like, ah, like, oh, I think I meant to do this, but I don't really want to. That's what we need to equip you for. And that's why week after week after week, if you can do those things, community, confession, corporate gathering, celebration, and the cause, you are pretty well equipped to battle the lies of the systems of the world. Now, theologian Jürgen Moltmann, a lot smarter than me, put it this way. The church does not have a mission, rather the mission has us. We belong to the mission of God. He is calling us out with the ecclesia. He's sending us out. That's the rhythm of the church. But we need to actually get here to do it. Friends, this is, this is the bit where it's going to get awkward. Church is less for you than it is from you. And this is, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, we're so glad you're here. Relax. I'm really talking to the hard-bitten Christians here who know Christ intimately, but like kind of turn up one in every four. And if you're feeling called out, I'm sorry. There's no, there's no names in mind, but let me, let me just say this. Friends, when you top, stop turning up on a Sunday, you let the world win. You let the world prioritize other things above your formation in the body of Christ. And I gotta tell you, like it is tempting Back when we were doing double services, there, um, Charlie was on cricket on a Sunday morning. And we, uh, we all came together on Sunday night, and it was fine because of that. But 
one week when I wasn't preaching, I went out with Charlie. Most of the time, we just sort of kind of had to drop him and run. But one time I went out with him and I was watching him play cricket. Because again, I'm at church on Sunday night. It's okay. I'm, I'm getting my rhythm. I'm getting my ecclesia. But I was sitting there in the sun, having a drink, looking around at the people around me, watching my son play cricket. And I thought, this is pretty freaking great. I can understand why people want to skip church. But for me, I tell you, friends, there's something that happens when you do that. Man, what happened when I first came to church, right? Let me come down for a minute. Sound guy's going to love this video even more. I, uh, I, 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 came, I grew up in the church. Did you know that? I was, I was about 13 when I left, but I never had any passion for it. And so I left and I did the things that you do when you're a teenager. And then my friends badgered me and they made me come to church. And, and I came and I sat in, in the back row about where Crystal is. Hey, mate. It's all right. And uh, I came and I sat down and I, and, I, and, I, and I sort of listened with my arms folded. And I was a bit nervous because everyone had their hands in the air. I was like, I don't know, what to, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm just going to, I'm a 19-year-old man. Oh, a boy, but you know, I think I'm a man. Oh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to get excited. And then something happened. As, as, as the preacher came to an end, the Spirit of God hit me. I was in a place called Pere. You remember that, Brian? Those were good days. A bit wild, though. Well, that's the way I like it. Yeah. <laughs> and Brian wouldn't have known I was there because there were like 200 people going crazy around that place. And this 19-year-old guy who has never had an encounter with the Spirit of God before, the Holy Spirit falls on me and I just start crying. This is not who I am. I did not go around crying at home. But I start crying and crying and crying. And God reached out. And it was like he said, I love you. I love all of them, but I love you. And I've called you out of your home, out of your workplace, out of where you are here to be in the people of God. And I've never left. I say to my kids, we're wardrobes. We worship. It's what we do on a Sunday. Oh, we're on holidays. Where are you going? going to church Sunday where are you going oh we'll work that out that'll be an adventure we're up in the Gold Coast we'll go to New Life hang out with my friends up there it's great oh can't we have a break well we could of course but this rhythm of the ecclesia the going out the coming in if you keep missing it if you have a few extra going outs and you miss the coming in something starts to fracture within your soul at first it just feels like a bit of a a burnish, a bit of a callous. You just think, oh, it's just annoying. It's all right, I'll get back there later. And then, and then you don't. You're like, ah, oh, Sunday mornings, sleeping in is pretty nice. That's, oh, go out in the sun, that's pretty good. Go out, get some exercise, hang out with some friends, brunch is good. And then slowly over time, I, I get it, we're a Sunday night service. So <laughs> slowly over time, slowly over time, that begins to become your new normal. And was, what was once just a little scar in your arm begins to become your old identity. In fact, you might even be a bit contemptuous of those people who are in church every week. It's like, ugh, sheep, can't even think for themselves, when in fact they've just fallen back into the patterns of this world. And the one behind the patterns of this world ultimately is the one who wants you to believe the lie that you don't need to be in community. Friends, you do. I know this because pastorally and respectfully, I've sat with many of you when you haven't been in community. I know you need community because I need community. I am better when you are here. I need your gifts. You need mine. 
We need one another. That's the body of Christ in action. 1 Corinthians 12 tells me that every time I come to church, you all have a gift to bring. Ephesians 4 tells me that every time the ecclesia gathers, there are people in you doing different functions. There are apostles dreaming new dreams. There are evangelists telling us how they want people to faith. There are prophets predicting the future. There are teachers encouraging people with wisdom. And there are pastors and shepherds coming alongside people, praying with them, weeping with them, cheering them on, and restoring them back into fellowship and grace through the power of Jesus Christ. That is the power of the ecclesia. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter, and man, if someone should know about the power of God and the power of the church, it's Peter, right? He says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a people of God's own possession, you who have been called out of darkness into his glorious light. Peter goes on, he says, once you are not a people, you, 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 you are lost, you are out there in the dark, but now you are God's people. Once you were in darkness, but now you are in light. Peter is trying to remind us, friends, what are you doing? If you're here and you're a believer, find your home, plug in and stay there. Not because I want you to sit and consume and be entertained by me week in and week out. If you think that, if you come to that place where you're like, ah, I don't know if church is for me, then you've missed the point entirely. You are the problem and the solution. The church is for you because you are the church when you come and participate here. When you break bread and drink wine with us, you are the church. When you raise hands in worship, you are the church. When you lay a hand on a friend and pray for them, you are the church. When you speak a word of encouragement, whether prophetically or just in kindness and hospitality, you are the church. And the church is God's chosen vehicle to shine the light of Christ into the world. He knows we're imperfect. He knows it's stronger than, more than we do. But in His grace, in His wisdom, He said, I will take these broken vessels, these individuals, I'm going to bring them together and something's going to happen. And surely one of the disciples went, they're going to really irritate each other. It's like, whoa, yeah, they're really going to irritate each other. That's another thing pastorally I could tell you. Some of you sometimes, whew, but, you think I'm joking? <laughs> but you can't love without somebody else. And in fact, you can't really love unless you've been irritated a little bit, unless you've been forced to stretch yourself. Love isn't love unless it costs you something. For God, it cost him everything. But it gained him everything. Gained him the church. Now, I've addressed a lot of tonight to Christians. And I know, I know there are moments in life where it's harder. When you've, if you've got like three little kids, uh, like the pits do, one of them is always sick. Like it's a living miracle or three of them are healthy all at once. Am I right? It is a living miracle. That's not what I'm talking about. And I think you know it. What I'm talking about is the conscious decision to be part of community, to buy in the way that Christ brought into you despite your sin. When we were enemies to the cross, he came for us. So what is it going to cost you to be part of the church? What price are you willing to pay? Now, if you're here, and Ben, you guys can come back up. If you're here and you're not part of the church, that is, you are not somebody who would yet call themselves a believer. Oh, man, I'm so glad you're here. 
I'm so glad for you. Because can I tell you, sometimes we make out like we're a bit of a holy huddle. That's what happens when our eyes are too low and not up high enough. God loves you just as much as he loves anyone else in this room. He is here for you. He is cheering you on. He knows your name. He knew you when you were in the womb. He saw you before you were born. And he calls you his own. Whether you call him father, he calls you his daughter, his son. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.